den Richtlinien so vorgenommen worden sind, wie wir das für richtig halten. Das heißt... Now, from time to time, I have a stack of Twilight Zone magazines next to my desk here, and I will just flick through them, you know, see what's in there. They're kind of funny little time capsules, you know, there's interviews in there with film stars. It's not just about the Twilight Zone, it's about movies, about television. There are short stories in there and interviews with uh, people from the Twilight Zone as well. And as I was doing my preparation for A Penny For Your Thoughts, I just happened to pick up the June 1989 issue. And in that magazine is a piece by George Clayton Johnson called Your Three Minutes Are Up. It's quite a short piece, but it finds him in a very reflective mood. It was from 1989, so he would have been in his early 60s. Now, as we know, Charles Beaumont died in his late 30s, so at this point, he would have been gone for more than 20 years. Now, the thing about this Twilight Zone magazine is there's so much stuff in it now, but obviously, you know, it's an old magazine. Who really does anything with the stuff in this anymore, you know? There's, there's a lot of stuff in there, and it Unfortunately, I know a lot of people collect Twilight Zone magazine, but it does seem to be forgotten, and I think it would be a shame for this nice piece that George Clayton Johnson wrote to go forgotten. So I'm going to read it to you now, and I hope you will forgive that the person playing the main two parts sounds suspiciously like a certain Liverpoolian podcaster. But I'd also like to give thanks to my friend Brandy Jacola from the Dark Corner podcast, who provided her voice for this piece as well. I think George Clayton Johnson maybe deserves that special mention. So this is my tribute to him, and I will see you next time for his first scripted episode of The Twilight Zone, A Penny for Your Thoughts. I have become increasingly aware of the briefness of life. Sitting here in this improvised workroom, in my little home in Pacoima, late at night, after the family has gone to bed, touching this battered portable. I remember only yesterday, when the typewriter was new, and I wanted so desperately to be a published writer of short stories, like my friend, Charles Beaumont. It was like a crazy need. 
Writing is a lonely business. It tends to make you reclusive because it is difficult to concentrate, to get lost in the work while others are around. More and more you seek a place to be alone. When I used to hang around with the group learning to be a writer, little did I know that I would spend so many solitary hours at night dreaming. God knows I'd rather be down the hall in the bedroom cuddled up with Lola than here in the workroom trying to build a story so that Lola and I can earn the money necessary to keep the bills paid, to feed us and allow us to be together. Even after all these years, we're still best friends who can't be in the same room without plunging into earnest conversation, with both of us talking as fast as we can. Only a closed door stops the avalanche of ego words that continually pass between us. I've taken to working late at night after she has gone to bed, and the world has quieted down, alone in what was once a spare bedroom, trying to fit together just those words on paper that might excite an editor and eventually bring in the money we need. The only way to survive is to write stories that sell, which is why I was in my workroom at three in the morning, lost in language. When the telephone rang, I grabbed it to keep it from waking Lola aware of the lateness of the hour and apprehensive because calls this late often portend trouble. Hello, I said. A woman with a telephone company voice said, This is the special operator. I have a person-to-person -person call for George Clayton Johnson. I wondered what kind of trouble it was. This is George. And I heard her saying from farther away, I have your party on the line, sir. One moment. Another click and the woman was gone. Then I heard a voice saying, Hello George, I thought I might catch you now, I know you like to work at night. The voice was warm and familiar, it was the voice of Charles Beaumont. I hope I'm not interrupting anything important, I, I thought if you weren't too busy we could talk for a few minutes. I felt the hair go up on my spine. Charles Beaumont has been dead for more than twenty years. Who is this? I said, suspicious. I could feel myself suddenly becoming angry. It is I, the familiar voice intoned solemnly. It is only and merely I. But let's not waste time. I have a lot of questions to ask. Firstly, how's the group? Have you seen them lately? My God, whoever was doing him had all Chuck's inflections down pat. Abruptly, I felt cold, aware of the night. I heard the faint tinkle of ice in a glass. A thought crossed my mind. Do they serve alcohol in heaven? This isn't funny, I said. Not at all. George, said Beaumont's voice with a note of disappointment. I had expected you to be quicker. I found myself wanting to prove how quick I could be. Beaumont always had that effect on me. Okay, Chuck, I said tightly. I'll go along with the gag. So here we are in the twilight zone. How are things at your end? Is it the standard heaven? Not exactly, he said. That's why I called. 
Now, I thought, here's where we find out what this is all about. Tell me more. The greater truth is that one man's heaven is another man's hell. Knowing how much English he could put on things, I said, Give it to me with the bark off. It's exactly the way I imagined it would be. Everything is perfect. There's not a discordant note. There's never any waiting, and no one disputes anything I say. Do you see the implications? He said sharply. I read that a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or... What's a heaven for? I said, trying to understand. Exactly, said Beaumont's voice somberly. And then, brightening, added, But it's my turn. What about Bert Schoenenberg? What's his latest stuff like? He died, Chuck, I said, reminded of the brilliant artist whose luminous paintings had enlightened us all. Oh, I didn't know. The sound of the words chilled my blood. Chuck, I said, Bert was one of the good guys. Haven't you seen him around? No, he said. I sat stunned, thinking, my father's house has many mansions. And the group, are they still living? Yes. I could hear relief in his voice. And do you still take each other to the beach? I remembered those night-long sessions of naked encounter and mutual psychiatry, with the four of us jammed into Chuck's new Volkswagen. We would drive along the seacoast or hunch together over steamy cups in an all-night diner to thresh out the problems of the world, while pointing out each other's flaws, stripping away the falseness. For Chuck they were fun, but for me, those confrontations were often nightmares, as I defended myself against self-satisfied challenges. John, who figured out how he should feel before becoming emotional, with visions of himself as a no-nonsense executive, with a taste for the finer things in life. Bill, who would kid his way out. The willing focus of Chuck's jokes who never forgot or misplaced anything. Determined to make a living from writing, any kind of writing. Happy when the heat wasn't on him. And Chuck Beaumont, keeping things moving with his aggressive manner and willingness to go first, somehow knowing that he was bulletproof, that he was the master of verbal judo, who was living a charmed life. Among us, Chuck was the authority on writing. He had written The Hunger and other stories, had already published his first hardcover novel, was selling regularly to slick magazines like Playboy, and was being sent to the studios on interviews by his Hollywood agent, Malcolm Stewart, of the Ingo Preminger Agency on Sunset. He was a proven success. Bill was selling stories and articles to the men's magazines. John had been taken on by the Harold Matson Agency in New York, and there was talk of a book contract. I didn't have an agent. All I had sold was an original movie script for Peanuts, and after several years it looked as though it would never be produced. All of my attempts to write short stories had come back again, till I was blind to their faults, baffled by the problem I had taken to procrastinating 
while I figured out the secret, studying Chuck and the others for clues on how the magic act was done. Was it the neatly typed pages, typed and retyped to perfection? Was it the charm, the personality, the telephone manner? Was it connections? Was it luck? Chuck insisted it was work, and that was echoed by the others. He talked a lot about forcing himself to sit in a chair. He would put a piece of paper in the typewriter and make himself stay there, even if the words wouldn't come. He said it was the way he got that trance state where he forgot himself and became the work. He had adopted a schedule and he stuck to it, which wasn't my way. That's what I'd quit my job to avoid. So all too often I'd find myself backed into an uncomfortable corner by all three of them at once, forced to admit that measured by my progress, I could be wrong. I was there to learn, wasn't I? Somehow it was different when it was Chuck who was outflanked. He would smile warmly at us and thank us for straightening him out, while praising us all for our insights into his self-delusions. Yes, I remembered those enlightening torture sessions we called being taken to the beach. No, I said, we haven't been to the beach in years. Why not? Chuck's voice sounded dismayed. It appeared to me that you liked and admired each other. Sure, I said, but you were the centre. You must have known that the group would pull apart without you. Not all at once. Bill and I wrote a fairly successful book together, but it turned out that the big attraction between us was you. We spent our time together, waiting. You'd lock yourself away, working on something while we'd wait for you to come out and play. We'd see each other from time to time, but the day would come when you'd finish the script or the story and you'd be back again. Then the group would come alive. That was when you, tired of solitude, would want excitement. The minute you'd come out of the office of yours with the manuscript under your arm, you'd call one of us on the phone and he'd come running maybe picking up somebody on the way. You knew how to orchestrate these things, so we'd all end up at your place to talk and to listen to the hi-fi, or pile into a car and go for a drive. It was your group, Chuck. Without you to centre on, we simply discovered that we all lived in different worlds. When John Donne wrote, No man is an island, he was mistaken. We may share the earth, but each man is a universe of his own creation. His dreams, his lusts, his needs. Every man is a god who has forgotten his divinity. Exactly, said the voice of Charles Beaumont. That's why it's so important that you call the others. Get them back together again. It's only while you're on earth that you get your three wishes. If you have the will to, reach for them. It's magic interacting with the throng. There are dangers, of course. It's easy to forget yourself and get lost in all the exciting activity, to be caught up in the world. But you must not avoid it either. Call them, George. Get the group together. Don't let them drift out of your life. Hug them to you. Cling to them. Pray for them. Cherish them. Didn't you know that if each of us lives in his own world, 
He also lives in his own heaven. It gets very lonely when the others aren't around, George. Hurry. There's only so much time. Infinity is only a heartbeat long. Eternity is now. For God's sake, wake up. There was a sudden click buzz on the phone and I heard the colourless voice of the special operator. I'm sorry to disconnect you, sir, but your three minutes are up. Far off away, I thought I heard an anguished cry, then the familiar dial tone. I fumbled the phone back into the cradle and sat there for a moment, thinking. I could see what he meant about there not being enough time. I wanted to tell him that Though he was right about not letting the friendship die, I couldn't suddenly stop working and call John and Bill. If I could simply stop what I'm doing, the first thing I'd do is go down the hall to the bedroom where my wife Lola lies sleeping. Don't you understand, Chuck? It isn't only the money to pay the bills. There is a greater truth. Don't you know that when you were alone in your office, writing those stories. You were touching more people, more deeply, with the quality of your mind and thoughts than you ever could in a car driving along a beach with three guys. And don't you see why I couldn't leave the workroom until I finished this story? Your Three Minutes Are Up by George Clayton Johnson Hey Billy, why do you look so down? Aw Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. <sighs> Gee Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, in lots of action. Wow! That sounds great, Dad! Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is Daddy-O! Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Rocksprocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour. And now there's... Yeah? Twisted Pulp Magazine! <laughs> What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! Whoa! Dad, this looks awesome! Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome! You definitely have that right, my good man! Ha <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Mary! My pleasure, Billy! And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye! Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine! Available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere! Or at Amazon.com or ArchaicMedia.info That is A-R-C-H-A-I-C-M-E-D-I-A dot info! <laughs> Thank you.
Several hundred miles from the coast, the office of Pembroke Labs discovers that a seldom used fax machine sputters into life, spitting out a collection of pages, the origin of which comes from one of their most isolated satellite laboratories on an island too small to be found on most mariners' charts. The last scientist stationed at that lab collects his handwritten notes in the fax caddy. The machine carefully draws in the stack of reports every other Friday to send to head office for analysis and archiving. The final batch of log entries just arrived. Log of Dr. Stevens for August 30th. Subject, Barney the Rat. Continuing experiment to increase his intelligence now on our sixth month. We are alone on the island now, Barney and I. It was something of a jolt to have to sack Taylor after all these years, but I had no alternative. The petty vandalisms I could have forgiven, but when he tried to poison Barney, out of simple malice, he was standing in the way of scientific progress. That I cannot condone. I can only believe that the attempt was made while under the influence of alcohol. It was so clumsy. The poison container was overturned, and a trail of powder led to Barney's dish. Taylor's defense was the flimsiest. He denied it. Who else, then? September 2nd. I'm taking a calmer view of the Taylor affair. The monastic life here must have become too much for him. That and the abandonment of his precious guinea pigs. He insisted to the last that they were better suited than Barney for my experiments. They were more his speed, I'm afraid. He was an earnest and willing worker, but something of a clod, poor fellow. At last, I have complete freedom to carry on my work without the mute reproaches of Taylor. I can only ascribe his violent antagonism towards Barney as jealousy. And now that he is gone, how much happier Barney appears to be. I have given our little rodent friend complete run of the place. What sport it is to observe how his newly awakened intellectual curiosity carries him about. After only two weeks of glutamic acid treatments, he's become interested in my library, dragging the books from the shelves and going over them page by page. I am certain he knows that there is some knowledge to be gained from the tomes, but alas, he does not have the key intelligence needed to unlock it. September 8th. For the past two days, I have kept Barney confined, and how he hates it. I am afraid that when my experiments are completed, I shall have to do away with Barney. Ridiculous as it may sound, there is still the possibility that he might be able to communicate his intelligence to others of his kind. However, Small the chance may be, the risk is too great to ignore. 
Fortunately, there is, in the basement, a vault built with the idea of keeping vermin out. It will serve well to keep Barney in. September 9th. Apparently, I have spoken too soon. This morning, I let him out to frisk around a bit before commencing a new series of tests. After a quick survey of the room, he returned to his cage, sprang up on the door handle, removed the key with his teeth, and before I could stop him, he was out the window. By the time I reached the yard, I spied him on the highest ledge of the well, and I arrived on the spot only in time to hear the key splash into the water below. I own that miserable fact that I am somewhat embarrassed. It is the only key. The door is locked. Some valuable papers are in separate compartments inside the vault. Fortunately, although the well is over 40 feet deep, there are only a few feet of water in the bottom, so the retrieving of the key does not present an insurmountable obstacle. But, I must admit, Barney has won the first round. September 10th. I have had a rather worrisome experience that has left me shaken. And once more in a minor clash with Barney, I have come off as second best. In this instance, I will admit he played the hero's role, however, and may even have saved my life. In order to facilitate my descent into the well, I knotted a length of three-quarter inch rope at one-foot intervals to make a rude ladder. I reached the bottom easily enough, but after only a few minutes of groping for the key, my flashlight gave out and I returned to the surface. A few feet from the top, I heard excited squeaks from Barney, and upon obtaining ground level, I observed that the rope was almost completely severed. Apparently, it had chafed against the edge of the masonry, and the little fellow, perceiving my plight, had done his utmost to warn me. I have now replaced that section of rope and arranged some old sacking beneath it to prevent a recurrence of the accident. I have replenished the batteries in my flashlight and am now prepared for the final descent. These few moments I have given myself a breathing spell and a chance to bring my progress journal up to date. Perhaps I should fix myself a sandwich as I may be down there longer than seems likely at the moment. September 11th. Poor Barney is dead, and soon I shall be the same. He was a good rat. A wonderful rat and life without him is not worth 
my thing. If anybody reads this, don't come to the island. Do no disturb it. Live it alone like a shrine to my pal Barney. Especially the old well. Do not look for my body as I, Dr. Stevens, will toss myself into the sea. Maybe you could bring a couple of young rats and leave them as a living memorial to Barney. Females only, no males. I hurt my wrist, so is why this is written so bad. This is my last will and testament. Do what I say and don't come back or disturb anything after you bring those young rats, like I said. Just females. Goodbye. Such a loss to science and random. But perhaps somewhere on an island, the spirit or something more of Barney remains. Barney by Will Stanton was adapted for audio by Jack J. Ward. Dr. Stevens was performed by John Bell. The host by Kareem Cronfley. Music by Sharon B. This is an Electric Vicuna production. This has been an Electric Vicuna production.